Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you have a Bible with you this morning, if you don't have a Bible, there are some that you can take off the table in the back there. Please take one. If you want to borrow one for the morning, that's fine. If you want to take it, please do. If you know someone who needs one, please give it to them. 1 Corinthians 16, we'll open this book for the last time this Sunday. We're going to finish this journey through 1 Corinthians. I have no idea how many sermons we've preached, how many weeks we've been. I know that it started in October of 2019. It was interrupted due to COVID, so March 8th, I think, was the last time. 2020 was the last time we were in Corinthians, and I think we started it again maybe last October or September, so whatever that time frame works out to be, but we have been journeying through the first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. And I pray for those that have been a part, at least from chapter 10 through the end, I pray that it's been a beneficial journey to you. I have certainly learned a lot as I have studied and prepared and taught. And I pray that it has great fruit. I know that the word of God will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it in our church. And so I pray that it's been beneficial in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we are ending... Today, specifically focusing on verses 21 through 24, we're going to finish the book today. Ending this journey, Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, a messed up church full of messed up people. And do you know what I did this morning? I printed or at least pulled out the notes from last week. So if you weren't here, we can preach last week's sermon. I'll just have to preach from my phone. How many people were excited when I wadded up that paper? They're like, oh, whew, give me a short sermon this morning. Yeah, I'll just do this from my phone. Thank God for technology. This will be fun and interesting. We don't want the screen to shut off while we're so auto-lock. Never. There we go. Praise the Lord. We can do this. Finishing our journey through 1 Corinthians, and Paul is saying farewell. This is, these are his last words to the Corinthian church in this letter. He's going to write them again. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 24, 21 through 24. <clears throat> He's addressed their sin. He's talked about how messed up they are as a church. He has challenged them with sound doctrine. <clears throat> when we met them back in chapter 1, we met a church divided. A messed up church full of messed up people. Tolerating sin, unloving, a church with improper worship. Remember all these things we've seen as we've traced through 1 Corinthians. Improper worship, imperfect doctrine, however messed up they may have been. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're a messed up church. Nobody's convinced. You're a messed up church. I'm a messed up pastor. We're messed up. Turn to your neighbor and tell it, we're a messed up church. Don't be afraid to acknowledge it. However messed up we may be, we can draw comfort. Even at the end of the letter, we can draw comfort from the very beginning of the letter. However messed up they were, look what Paul says. Turn back to chapter 1 and look what he says. Chapter 1, the second verse. Look what he says. Messed up. Messed up, full of sin. Imperfect doctrine, improper worship. Look what he says. Chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. In Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon 
the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Messed up, but called to be saints. Sanctified by the indwelling spirit of the living God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, however messed up, however imperfect, saved according to God's mercy by God's grace on the basis of absolutely nothing that you bring to the table. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These words give us hope. They should be comforting to us when you look around and you think, man, what in the world is wrong with this church? What in the world is wrong with these people? You ought to be able to look around and say, but they bear Christ's name. And I love them. I love you. Genuinely, this chapter this week as I close this, was producing much love in my heart for you, for us, the church. I'm thankful. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's read this one last time. Let's read the whole chapter together. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their home, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, be with us as we look to your word for instruction today. We know that your word is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, for convicting us, that we may be complete. And so, God, we look to your word now. Teach us by the power of your spirit. Father, speak to me as you speak through me. And I pray that your spirit would bring your word to bear on our ears, that we would look to you and submit to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 21 through 24, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. 
I titled the sermon, The Grace of the Lord, because the first point we're going to talk about quickly is Paul's, verse 23, Paul's, or 21, his ending, his official ending, and verse 23 and 24. I, Paul, write this. The grace of the Lord be with you, he says, verse 23. This ending, this letter, as we've journeyed through it, is deeply personal. We're now reflecting, if you, if you will. If you were here for the original start through 1 Corinthians and now the end of it, if you will, all of 1 Corinthians is deeply personal. It is deeply loving. And the ending, like the rest of the letter, is deeply convicting. He says, I, Paul, write this. I want you to understand a couple things about Paul saying these words. One, Paul writing this, 1 Corinthians, I was doing some research, and and the Bible nerds and scholars in the room will probably do better than I did, but I was trying to find out what is the longest epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote. Who just said, what's an epistle? Raise your hand. Don't be jealous. Don't be shy. Like I don't know what an epistle is. It means letter. Letter written. Paul wrote a letter. What is an epistle? He wrote a letter. Paul wrote this. What's the longest one that he wrote? In my research... It's definitely a tie between either Romans or 1 Corinthians, with what looks like Romans by word count edging out 1 Corinthians. So for those that are extremely curious, it looks like Romans is actually longer, and I found a guy who had, oh my goodness, he had this spreadsheet, and he had worked down to like the word and its similar words, like this guy went crazy in the Greek, it was fascinating. You're like, that sounds terrible, but it's not, because every word That God gave Paul to use means something to us. So I was curious, which is longer? 1 Corinthians and Romans are both 16 chapters. By verse count, in the English Standard Version, which I use, by verse count, 1 Corinthians is longer by like four verses. So I called it a tie for first. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Think about what Paul has said to them across 16 chapters. I hear that there's division among you. Some follow this guy and some follow that guy. I hear that there's sin among you that the pagans don't tolerate. I hear that when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper. Like, he could have wrote, Dear Corinthians, what's wrong with you, Paul? He spends all this time writing. This is deeply personal. He lived with them. For a long period of time, he lived with them. This is deeply personal. Paul identifies himself as having written this letter to the Corinthians. Pastor, why is this important? Well, Paul is the author of most of the New Testament letters that we read. He did not author Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts. He did not write 1st and 2nd Peter. He did not write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, James, Revelation. Maybe he wrote Hebrews, but we don't think so. He wrote all of the epistles, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. These are all his. He wrote them all to the church, this one being one of the longest. Only 1st Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, and 2nd Thessalonians. Only in those four books does he end it by saying, I, Paul, write this. He wrote those letters personally himself. It's interesting, Romans chapter 16, verse 22, identifies a guy named Tertius, identifies himself 
as being the writer of Paul's words in the book of Romans. Throughout the Bible, and this may be something that challenges you as you read, throughout the Bible, not all authors of the Bible are the writers of what you're reading. That makes no sense in our economy, does it? If I pick up a book and it says, oh, look, John Doe is the author, what do we expect? We expect that all the words inside that book were written by the author's name on the cover. So if, if we say that these are all Paul's letters, but he didn't write them, like, how can we trust? I can't even, can I trust that it's even Paul's words? This is where 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 are so vital. I'm curious, just as a testament to their work and their knowledge, any kids club kids in here right now? Let's see your hands. Okay, so kids club, kids club kids that are in the room, who thinks they know 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? Come on up, Jonah. I don't know how I knew your hand would go up so quickly. If you're not helping with kids, if you're not helping with kids, then you're missing out. Ooh, it's working. 2 Timothy 3, 16, go. Oh, is that? Well, yeah, sure, do 17 just for extra credit. Why not? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Awesome. Awesome. Have a seat. Second Peter, kids club kids, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Anybody know it? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Ooh, they're thinking. Do you know it, Liam? Do you think you know it? Okay. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy of Scripture exists because of someone's own interpretation. For men spoke as they heard from God and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When you come to the Scripture and think that you have reason to question, I'm trying to not have feedback here, I don't know if I can trust it. Can I trust it? You return to these doctrinal statements that the Bible gives us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It's breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It didn't come from someone making it up. It was given by God to a man who wrote it down as the Holy Spirit enabled. That is how you have God's word. So whether Paul physically wrote the letter that you are reading or someone else wrote it for him, what happened? God spoke to Paul and Paul spoke and someone wrote his words. Inspired by God, written down for us. All scripture. That is how we must, when we approach God's word, we must approach it through the lens that God has identified for our reading. If you are reading the Bible any other way, you need a tune-up in your faith. You may need to be saved. I don't want to judge your heart. But this is the depth of our faith. This word was breathed out by God. It was recorded by man. And I have it now as God's word. The Kids Club kids learned a few weeks ago. How many adults in the room, this didn't work with kids, but adults, you've ever had a traffic ticket waiting for you when you came out of a building? You came out, like not many, I guess. Maybe it's, there's just a few of us here that have had this experience. I see you. <laughs> 
You came out of a store or some such thing, you're like, oh, whoops, what did I do? Was I parked here too long? Was I parked here illegally? What did I do? All of you took that traffic ticket, and what did you do? Right, you didn't do that. Why? Why didn't you do that? Because the municipality stamped on their police department, officer so-and-so so graciously left you that you could pay to your municipality. What came along with that piece of paper and that signature? The authority behind it. And if I avoid this traffic ticket, what's going to happen? Adults, like kids were like, I don't know, what does happen? Uh, you have some unpaid traffic fines and I'm going to need you to come with me. Dang it. Oh. That ticket came with authority. And you responded to the authority behind it. And God's word is so much more significant than a traffic ticket. His word comes to us with his authority behind it, as though when we read, God himself were in front of us saying what his word states. Do you understand? I, like, I want to help us understand God's word as much more important than perhaps we have before deeply personal. I, Paul, write this to you. And look at the loving words, deeply personal and deeply loving. Look at the loving words, and this is where the sermon title came from, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. There could be no more loving words for one human to speak to another human than the grace of our Lord be with you. Think about the grace of the Lord. Think about the depths of your sin and what you did to be saved from them. I don't think we dwell on this enough. We recognize our sin. We know that we were sinners or are sinners, as we should properly state. I recognize my sin, but you were saved by grace. You did nothing. God demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. The grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Honestly, as I prepared this sermon, studying this passage, and watching the news, I just kept praying, God, may your grace be with those people. I've just been praying grace. I don't even know how to pray anymore. Like, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray. Like, this is so common for us. We see war and turmoil. God, I pray you just bring peace. He might not bring peace. Oh, well, then I just pray that there will be revival from this. He might not do that. The more this happens, the more incensed against God humanity is going to become. Read Revelation. This is why I say in small circles and sometimes broad circles, maybe I've said it here, I'm not sure, our understanding of end time events matters. Eschatology matters. Jesus says don't be alarmed when you hear of wars and rumors of wars because these things must happen. It's the beginning. So we see this, we're like, oh, well, I hope this passes. Uh, me too, I hope it passes. I hope this is not the beginning of the end, but do you understand that the Lord tarries and if events happen the way that he has chosen in our lifetime, one of these times it's going to start and it's not going to end. And people will hate God. Read Revelation. 
I, I afflicted them with this. I did that. I did this. And they said, we will not repent. We will not turn to you. Sooner or later, there will not be the grace of the Lord for people to have. So I pray, God, may your grace be with those saints, with those believers, with the church. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love, Paul says, my love, he knew them, lived with them, ate with them, ate their food, lived in their homes, experienced their hardships, evangelized. You know that Stephanus, he and his household were the first converts. I labored among you and preached the gospel, and you responded like there is a, a deep, personal love that Paul is relating to the Corinthians with as he writes these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Why? Because without Christ Jesus, Paul hates them. We don't think about it, do we? We read all the first Corinthians, we're like, oh, wow, what a, remember what Paul was? Remember before the grace of our Lord Jesus? What was he doing? Killing people who believe on Jesus. If he had not had that encounter on the Damascus Road and been saved, you can bet Corinth would have been on his list. He was a Jew. Listen, the Corinthians are Gentiles and Paul was a Jew. He already hated them in his flesh. And then he comes to the end of his letter, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. All these things, like you're like, wow, pastor, thanks for sharing that. I just wish I could, you can, read the Bible. It teaches us these things. Paul was radically transformed by the faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God saving his soul and he's able to go from a murder, slandering, Gentile-hating, Christian-persecuting Jew to my love be with you all. And in typical Paul fashion, you'll read as you read through the epistles, he ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. How many, church, how many of you have grown up in some form of traditional church where the service ends with a benediction? Anybody that actually... Has ever experienced this? Okay, some of us, not a whole lot of us. And many of us in our youthful exuberance to throw off all of the things that remind us of the past that was boring and we didn't like, because that's how we view church, right? Unfortunately. It was boring, I didn't understand it, what do we do that for? And churches wholesale are just cutting things out. These two verses right here, 23 and 24, and others like them at the end of Paul's letters, Christians have been leaving the presence of one another with words like this for centuries. Not just, see ya, hey, bye. Why? Because we're bound. And when we separate, we are praying the grace of the Lord be with you. My love be with you in Christ. And so a benediction, though we consider it perhaps a traditional thing in the church world, we're like, oh, right? And we just tune out. We're not even paying attention to it. And they are some of the kindest, most thoughtful, and loving words that we could possibly utter to one another when we part company. My favorite comes at the end of the letter to 2 Corinthians, the second letter to Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14. I love this, my favorite. This is my personal, I've used it in our church gathering. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I love that. You know why I like that one? I love the Trinitarian nature of those words. 
and the Lord Jesus, our Father, God, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you. Deeply personal, deeply loving, yet deeply convicting as the rest of the letter has been. I want to draw your attention to verse 23 or verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. If anyone has no love for the Lord. I was thinking about just pointing out that love for God should be the first and surest sign of a believer. But I couldn't start at that point. I needed to start with a lack of love for God is the first and surest sign of an unbeliever. Lack of love for God is the first and surest sign of an unbeliever. They don't love God. They may, as I'm going to talk about, they may appreciate things about God. They may know Bible stories. They may have an understanding, but at their center, at the innermost being, they are at enmity with God. They do not love him. Love of the Lord is a sure sign of a believer. Lack of love for the Lord is a sure sign of an unbeliever. And Jesus talks about this. Like read Luke, read John. Surely they'll hate you, but it's not you, it's me. They hated me first. Man is at enmity with God. It started in the garden with the forbidden fruit they ate and they shouldn't have. And man has been at odds. Colossians says that we are alienated and hostile to God in our flesh. If anyone has no love for the Lord. Love for the Lord is the first and surest sign of a believer. And this is a public love. For those that just live in their home loving God and walk out the door and never love God publicly we have things to question. I want to word that cautiously and carefully. We have things to question. If your life does not show me that you love God, there's a problem with how you are living your faith. Our lives should be publicly loving God. God requires the first place in the lives of his people. You can trace this throughout the Old Testament, and you can trace it right on into the New Testament. So everything he says to them then still applies to us today. Jesus has made it so. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, you'll read about God requiring his people to love him first. Genesis, Exodus chapter 20, is that like the Ten Commandments? It sure is. It's like exactly the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. What does he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. We leave that preamble off and it's important. I am God who did this. And you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The first four laws of God have to do with his people putting him first. Love for the Lord is the first and surest sign of the believer. 
Moses three times while restating the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 11 says to the people, therefore, love the Lord. Joshua chapter 25 talking to the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. This is after the conquest of the promised land. They've beaten out everyone they're supposed to beat out, and the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's not to say half of them, They were like a stepbrother, the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were Joseph's sons, born to him in Egypt. They became Jacob's sons when Jacob met them. Man, it's, it's incredible. Read all about it in the Bible. Read the Bible. They say, wait a second, we like this land over here on the other side of the Jordan. And and they're like, but wait, but God gave us that land on that side of the Jordan. But we want to live over here. But God gave us over there. And so you can read in Joshua, this thing is agreed to where we're going to live over here. Okay. So they go through and they conquest of the land. And they say to them, we will come and we will fight with you wherever the enemies of our people are. And when we have subdued them, we will go back to our land. Okay, fine. Joshua chapter 22, Joshua comes to the Reuben, Reubenites, Gadites, and the Manassehites, what a weird thing to say, and says to them, when he sends them, go back to the place across the river, he says to them, love the Lord. Moses, God says it, Moses says it, Joshua says it, David in Psalms chapter 31 verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints, love God. Then in the New Testament, Moses, an imperfect redeemer of an imperfect people. David, an imperfect king of an imperfect people. All looking forward, all types of what was to come. Here comes the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect redeemer, a perfect king. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 was read for us this morning. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus says, this is the first and foremost commandment. Love for the Lord is to control us. Do you understand? Like we probably are, I sat and stared at the words on the text. I'm like, how does it do that? Think about how love controls you already. Think about the things you do involuntarily for the people around you because you love them. How many of you woke up this morning and just like smacked your spouse or pushed your kids to the ground? You didn't do that. Why? You love them. I mean, I know it's Sunday morning. You might have had words. I get that. We had a good morning in our house. Praise God for a good morning. You don't do these things because love controls you. You don't just yell at your spouse because I just want to yell at someone. I love my wife. I'm not going to yell at my spouse. Maybe you yelled at your spouse this morning. Maybe you should repent for that. Maybe it was misplaced anger over something that boiled over. Right? We're human. We're not perfect. Love controls us. Why do we work and provide and put food on the table? Because our family needs to eat. We need to eat so we care and provide for people. Love controls us. Our love for God should control us. Our love for God should be putting up boundaries in our life that controls us as God has given us the ability to not sin through faith in Jesus. Our love for God should keep us from wanting to sin. It controls us. Doesn't make us perfect. Doesn't mean we won't. But it controls. It steers. 
What do we say? What do we do that should all be captive to our love for God? Did you know that in the Old Testament, every time the Bible tells people to love God, it also comes with, and do not turn from his commandments. So am I supposed to love or am I supposed to obey? Yes. Well, but I mean, it seems to me that God just wants me to obey him and my good behavior then produces love for him. Yes. Well, it seems that the more I love God, the more I want to obey him. Yes. They're married. They're inextricably inseparable together. Love and obey the Lord. Not just love for the Lord though, right? Jesus says the first and foremost commandment is love for the Lord. You shall love the Lord your God. This is the first and foremost commandment. And then he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, Christ says the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, did I derail on this one this week. Right, not who is my neighbor. That's been asked. That answer is in the Bible. I know who my neighbor is. Who's my neighbor? The man wishing to justify himself. Who's my neighbor? The one who had compassion, right? The story of the Good Samaritan. So who is my neighbor? Then my neighbor is the one on whom I can have compassion. I don't have to define all of those individual granular roles in all of your lives. All I need to do is let you know that the Bible says the one on whom you have compassion is your neighbor. You've done well. You've loved them. So can you have compassion on someone this week? When you have compassion on someone this week, you're loving your neighbor. But do you know that the word of God gets really particular? Maybe you didn't, but boy does it. Did you know that we're not just supposed to love our neighbor because how many people love people, right? We're supposed to love people. If you are a person who says, I hate people, repent. Christians should never say, I hate people. If you say that, repent. I'm telling you now to go before God and to repent for saying that you hate people. Oh, it's just a joke. No, it's not. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You don't just joke that way. Repent of it. Guilty as charged, and I have repented. Loving people is twofold. Love your neighbor. The man who cared for the person beaten, the good Samaritan, did not know that person. He was a stranger and he had compassion on him. But we are called to love God's people in a peculiar and special way. Not just our neighbor and not just all people. Love everyone, but love God's people in a peculiar way, a special way. It's twofold. Love neighbors and love our brothers and sisters. And this, as well as love for God, is supposed to be shown in our lives. It is a public love with which we love. Christ said in John chapter 13, verse 35, that our love for one another, saint to saint, our love for one another shows the world that we are Christ's disciples. The way I love you testifies to the sinful, lost, unredeemed world that I am Christ's. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus tells us that our love for him is obedience to him. How do I, how do I love God? You obey him. God tells us, you're obeying me when you love me. When you love me, you're obeying me shows that we are born of God, that we know God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 was a song I learned as a kid. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not God loveth not, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. Shows that we are born of God and that we know God. And 1 John 4.20 says that love of God proves our genuineness as believers in God. Do you understand how important our love for God and for people are? If anyone has no love for God, turn over to 1 John and look at this really quick. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, let's just read, I don't know, we might get crazy, but let's read the first just three verses. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone, I'm going to read it again because it's so profound and so against what we think. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Bold question. Are you sitting here born of God this morning? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved and born again? Show me your hands. Like, why would you be afraid of saying, I know God and I'm saved? Right? Look around the room. Look around the room. You got problems with people? If you have problems with people in the room and your hands up and their hands up, fix it. Because whoever has been born of God loves God and loves his people. That doesn't mean that we get along perfectly, but it means that we don't let things live between us because I love you because you are born of God and I am born of God. Whoever... Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. Look at this. Uh Uh-oh. I know. Read what's being said here. By this we, we can put ourselves right there. By this we know that we, here we are again, love the children. There's all of us again. So I can make it personal. By this I know that I love you right? Make, make it personal. God wrote these words to us. By this, I know that I love you, the children of God. Look it. When we love God and obey his commands. Not by when I bring you a meal. That's a tangible demonstration of my love for you. Not by when I send you a card. That's a tangible expression of my love for you. I love you when I obey God. If you don't obey God, you're not loving those who are born of God. Holy rabbit trail. Verse 3. For this is the love of God. This could be read, for this is love for God. This is the love of God. Look what it says. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. People are like, oh, but they are. They're so difficult. Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Do you know why God's commandments are so difficult? Because we're not reborn by the Spirit of God. God's commandments 
become easy for us when the Spirit of God gives us new life and enables us to live the commands of God. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You're not overcoming the world by any other means, by any other way other than through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he told you and me in John chapter 16, verse 33, you will have trouble here. You're going to have trouble in the world. Name it. You're going to fight with your spouse. You're going to be angry at your kids. You're going to cuss at your boss. You're going to cut somebody off on the highway. You're going to do bad things. You're going to sin. But Jesus didn't. And we put our faith in him. And when we put our faith in Jesus, he says, John 16, you'll have trouble in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, what does that make you? First John chapter 2 tells you. It makes you an overcomer of evil and of the world. And then you are free to live according to God's commands. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Man, our faith should be evident to people. We should be loving those we do not know as well as we can in hopes that our love for God demonstrated in our care for them will lead to a conversation of the gospel. And let's stop doing things. Oh, man, Lord, help me. Let's stop doing things hoping that what we're doing will lead to a conversation. If you're loving someone, just talk about Jesus. Tell them. Brother, sister, I I pray. I I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what your views on stuff in the world is, but I'm only doing this because, man, I love God. And my love for God controls me to love you. Can I talk with you about Jesus? Can I share why I would do this with you? Love for the Lord, expressed through our love for people around us. Love God, love people. Look what he says. If anyone has no love for the Lord... Because he's not done. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You know what that means? Anybody know what that means to be accursed? The Greek word is the word anathema. Anybody ever heard the word anathema before this morning? A couple people. It's not a great word. It's not one that we just want to be saying to people. It's not used very frequently in the scriptures. I think five or six times total throughout the scripture. You know what it means? It means to, let's pretend, let's just pretend, visual demonstration. Let's pretend that this chair has a broken leg, okay? And it can't, it can no longer hold anyone up because it is broken. What would we do with it? What would we do with a chair that can no longer function as a chair? We would set it over here and say, don't sit in that one. It's broken. It needs to be what? What? What do we do with something that's broken and no good? Throw it away. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Let him, if anyone has no love for the Lord. We have an object. The one who has no love for the Lord. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, anathema, set aside, 
devoted to destruction. Do you understand now why we wouldn't want to use these words with people? Do you understand the extent of where we're going when we get to that point? We're like, oh gosh, this is, but it's been light and lovey-dovey so far, but now it just got really heavy. What do you think it wasn't heavy when Paul wrote, listen, when you come together and I'm present with you, take that person and hand him over to Satan. Chapter 5, verse 5, 1 Corinthians. Do you know why? Because there will be people who come in among the believers who will not be believers. There will be people among the believers who profess to be believers that the believers will say they're a believer, but actions will say you're not a believer. And what does God say that we are to do with those who profess to be believers but who do not live as though they are believers? Do you know? It says, set them aside. Let God deal. Not us. We're not dealing with them. We are recognizing what they are not, and we are letting God deal with them. Look at, look, at the, look at the words. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Very similar to what he tells him in chapter 5. Very similar train of thought even to Matthew chapter 18 when Christ says what? If you and your brother, you have a problem, go to him. If he turns, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, take a couple witnesses. If he still doesn't, tell it to the church. If he still doesn't, turn him out as a tax collector. He's not one of you. His profession is false. Because those in whom the Spirit of God resides, we're going to offend one another bad. I'm going to say or do or act in a way that causes you to have a problem with me. But the Spirit of God in us, having saved our lives and giving us new birth unto Jesus Christ, also has created a way for you and I to come together and say, Brother, this has happened. I'm very sorry for what has happened. I want to reconcile the differences that have existed now between us. And we reconcile to one another because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole thing never escalates to anathema. But why do you think it's in here? Because later, writers in the New Testament would say, from among you will come those. False teachers. Those who prey on innocent women those who are only seeking to gain and to get financially, who have no love for God and no love for his people, we must have a way to do something with them. Oh, pastor, we could never turn someone out. If we don't, we're in sin. When you don't expose to a brother a sin that is clearly defined in the word of God and you see in their life, and I'm saying in love because holy awkwardness, Brother, I've seen this, and I don't know, but is this? And yes, it is. To not do that is to be in sin. You're allowing sickness to reside. When we don't deal with sin, we are allowing problems to brew and fester. Do you understand that anathema, set aside, laid up specifically, devoted to destruction, this is the only condition for those in the world without faith in Jesus Christ right now. Right here, right now, there is no other condition for those separated from Jesus Christ. They are devoted to destruction. There is no other condition for them now, and there is no other future condition for them apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ, saving their soul. There is no hope for them. Well, then what's the point? Obey God. 
Well, what am I supposed to tell people? Like, if, not, if there's no hope, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You're supposed to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and be obedient to God because your obedience to God demonstrates your love for God. Your love for God causes you to demonstrate your love for people, which is verification of your love for God. And so you preach the good news to all people. And God does the saving. Anathema. Look at the end of verse 22. Our Lord, come. And all God's people said, amen. That's not what Paul's saying to them. Paul's not saying here, come Lord Jesus. These aren't the words of John at the end of Revelation. Oh Lord, come quickly. You know what this means? In the Greek, it's one phrase. How many people have ever heard the word Maranatha? Few people. In the 90s, there was a really hip music group, Maranatha music, Maranatha singers, ooh, hip, for that time, for certain people. Maranatha, it's been used, I quizzed my wife, my wife and I, growing up in the church, we've heard all the different vernacular and slangs all our life. I asked my wife, I said, what, Maranatha, you've heard this? Oh yeah, what's it mean? How about, how about I do this with you, why not? What's Maranatha mean? Give me a word, what's it mean? Huh? Oh, come on people, what's it mean? Come Lord, who said it? Come Lord Jesus. Miss Rose, you've been reading the Bible and you know that Maranatha means our Lord come. It doesn't mean praise. It doesn't mean glory. It doesn't mean worthy. It doesn't mean majesty. It means our Lord come. And it doesn't mean come quickly. It means God's coming. Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Lord's coming. Why? Because people are dying and going to hell and we are armed with the good news of Jesus Christ to preach that they respond and God save them because the point of the whole thing is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to what? Reconcile all things. To place all things in subjection to him. To end all of the misery of this life and to begin eternity for his people. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, maranatha. That's literally how this, words, this reads in the Greek. Two words not separated by any punctuation, anathema, maranatha. Let them be devoted to destruction, the Lord's coming. Why? Because ain't nothing you're going to do change that person outside of the miracle work of God in their life. And he's coming, and he will avenge, and he will have his due. Our Lord, come. Used in scripture. This term, this phrase, our Lord, come, Maranatha, it's used one time in all of scripture right here. Pastor, that got a little heavy and a little dark really quick. Can you help us out of it? I don't know. I know what I've had to do in my own soul. I know it's been revealed in my heart. What do, we, what do we get from it? Do you love God? Do you love God? Right? If anyone has no love for the Lord, do you love the Lord? I'm not asking you if you respect God. I'm not asking you if you admire the things of God. I'm not asking you if you are open to the idea of God. 
I'm not asking you if you speak about God, read God's word, or gather with God's people on a Sunday morning in a gym. I'm asking you, has the Lord God Almighty touched your heart? Have you? The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light, and we are in utter darkness. Has the unapproachable light of the holy exposed your sin and have you looked at your sin in the light of who God is and have you turned on the basis of nothing within you? Faith alone in the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you set your affection? Have you set your desire? Have you cast all your hope and placed all your trust on the Lord Jesus Christ because you love God. You got to answer it. I can't answer it for you. I know that at the end of time, God says, the Lord Jesus, there are going to be many who say, Lord, did we not do? You know, this past week, this past week, I had a sight picture in my mind of people that I know. And it concerned me that they looked exactly like the people that Jesus says, I never knew you. Do you understand what that looks like? I don't think we think about this. Do you understand that Jesus saying, I never knew you, he's saying it to people who look like me, who look like you. People who, by all of our judgment and assessment, are Christians who are going to heaven, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Do you understand the severity of our salvation? By faith, through faith, by grace, according to God's mercy. If you have not trusted Christ in this way, do it today. Hebrews says, don't harden your heart. Don't further stiffen. Turn and trust Christ by faith today. The Bible says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Pastor, I, I, I love God. Do you? How many of us would say it? So many of us would say it. I love God. I love God. I love the Lord. Be very careful. We should have a confession of faith that proclaims our love for God, but we should also understand what that confession brings with it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that God's word judges the thought and the intent of the heart. I love God. If you don't, his word's going to find it out. And your sin will find you out because you're lying. Ugh. If you're going to say, I love God, you better make sure that your confession of faith is true. I'm not saying perfect. You didn't hear me say be perfect. You didn't hear me say have all your sin dealt with and be done with it. Confess, repent, turn away from, and then do it continually for the rest of your life until the Lord comes. But you are striving towards something. You better have your profession of faith nailed down. Because the world doesn't need you uncertain about the God you confess and what you believe and think about him. The world needs you right now knowing clearly what you believe and what you think as according to God's word about salvation, about the future, about death, about war in the Ukraine, about what if it comes to us, about, oh man, there's nuclear stuff and I'm all unsettled. And you can say, I'm not unsettled. Christ said, it's going to happen. Do you have faith in Jesus? 
Do you understand? The profession of our faith is not something that gets us into a room, into a tank of water, and has us eat meatballs after a Sunday morning time of singing songs. It's our declaration to a lost world that there is a God. Oh, I love God. Do you? Because those who love God love people in tangible ways, and their love for God is public, and they live it out. I love God. Do you obey God? Do you do what God says? Oh, Lord Jesus, pinpoint those who are in the room this morning. Heavenly Father, please. We're so broken, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, highlight the sin in our heart that keeps us from loving and obeying you. God, that we may confess it in Jesus' name. Do you love God? Do you obey his law? Do you keep his commands? Do you recognize who you are in front of him? Do you love people? Do you act in their good interest? Do you care for them because you love God, because God loves you and cared for you and you didn't deserve it? What is the life we are living as Christians? What is it saying and doing in the world that should be affecting change? Paul ends 1 Corinthians. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, accursed. The Lord's coming turned out, set aside for the judgment of God. I was reflecting with Pastor Gary this morning. We meet every Sunday. We pray for our churches. Did you watch this past week before the Ukraine was officially invaded by Russia? Did you watch the news? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Like, the Russian army is literally like, they're like lining up on the border. Just amassing on the border. Like, the people there could watch the trucks coming in and the the troops and everything. It's right there. You know what they did? Nothing. I don't think it's really going to happen. I, we've been through this before. Been here, been there, done that. You know what happened? At 5 a.m. on Thursday morning, Russian missiles started bombing the Ukraine. Here, hear this. There is an army massing. And there will be no bluff when the Lord Jesus returns. We are armed with the information to help people escape the judgment of God. We're imperfect as people and as a church. We are to love God and his people and tell them. Paul says, love is kind, it's patient, it's not arrogant. Have love. Put on love. Share the hope of Jesus Christ. Not often. Would you bow your heads? <clears throat> I want you to think about those words. We're going we're gonna to sing and worship and, and go. But reflecting now on all we have learned over the past several weeks. Do you love God? We just sang the song this morning, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. Take joy, my king, we sang these words. We stood in this room together and we sang these words. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet sound in your ear. Oh, Lord, I pray that our love for you would be genuine. 
I pray, God, that we would love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Oh, God, I pray that you would help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Father, I pray for those in this room who, by our best assessment, which is already flawed and frail, I pray for those in this room, God, that we love you with sincerity, truly. God, I pray for those who may be among us who do not love you. Your word is challenging to us right now. If we find those among us who do not love you, God, your word has told us to set them aside for destruction. Oh, Father, save them. Mercy. We call out for your mercy on them, our God. Only you can do this. Father, help us. An imperfect church full of imperfect people in a broken and fallen world. What a recipe for disaster. But oh, the hope we have through Jesus. We thank you for mercy and grace. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for salvation that comes on the basis of nothing but faith in the work of your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is by you and through you and in you that we come before the Father and we cry, Abba, Father. We thank you that there is no condemnation in us, that you have counted us free, God, because of the work of Christ. Help our witness to be true. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.